Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We're excited to have special guest Tim Challies here with us again. Tim, thanks for being here. You're very welcome. And of course, we've got the other Thinklings with us, Dr. Little. We have to call <laughs> him Dr. Little to differentiate Whatever. between the Tims. So Dr. Little, <laughs> how are you? I'm doing great. It's nice to be here. It's nice to be able to chat with Tim about his book, Seasons of Sorrow. So, yeah. And just Andy. Just Andy, that's all. I'm, I'm, I'm just Andy. It's good to see well, you all, though. It's good to be here. I'm just Charlie, so that's good. That's cool, too. <laughs> well... We have Horrendous. some. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. Does anyone want to go first? I've got a quick one. It won't take long because then we can go get to for the it. author's book. So I've been doing some work in Genesis, uh, studying in Genesis 3.16, the desire of the woman. And so I've been in a lot of Genesis commentaries. So if you're doing some studies in Genesis, I figured I'd just kind of throw some titles out there that um, might be ones you could go after. A couple of new ones, John Golden Gay, he has a commentary on a, on Genesis, uh, just came out a couple of years ago. It's decent. Um, he really does a good job in the narrative sections. The specific text I was working through, Genesis 3.16, not so great. Uh, I don't didn't feel like he really had come down on a solid position on it. Uh, another new one about five years ago, Tremper Longman came out with a commentary and he did a great job in Genesis 3.16, but the narrative sections I've interacted with have just not been that stupendous. So I just throw that out there too, to you listener, you know, sometimes you're in one section of a commentary and it just may not be that author's real strong, strong point. Uh, and so it's not necessarily something to give up on. Um, and that's also why it's sometimes helpful to have a plethora of commentaries. I would still recommend Victor Hamilton's commentary in the NICOT, New International Commentary of the Old Testament. That's still been my favorite. Handled uh, stuff really well there. And uh, so that's still my number one uh, favorite. Um, behind that, have fun. Uh, John Bruce Waltke did a pretty good job. I like his. It's very short and succinct. So if you want something shorter, Waltke could be good for you. Boom, books and business. That was a world record, Tim. <clears throat> so I'm reading Rembrandt is in the Wind by Russ Ramsey. It's a book on art. And it's really interesting if you have like an aesthetic trend or if you're a creative person. It's it's really interesting. His first chapter, he talks about the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty from a Christian perspective. He's talking about how art works. I'm only two chapters in. I have read the conclusion already. And then after he talks about the transcendentals, he each chapter is about an artist. And it's like a mini biography. It was really interesting. Uh, his chapter on Michelangelo was fascinating. His chapter on Caravaggio was shocking. Uh, that guy was a, a fighter. He he was always getting stabbed and cut and beat up. And he was running from the popes. And it was crazy. The very end of the book was helpful. If you've never been to an art museum, he tells you how to walk in, how to look at the art, um, how to benefit from the beauty in God's world and the creativity of other humans. And it gives you a quick overview of art from the 16th century. I really like the book. It's niche. So if you're into art, um, I would give you a, a low key recommendation. I want to finish it first. I will say as with all art books, uh, you may not want to have it lying around with your kids because some of the 
art that you're looking at is not uh, fully covered. It's not very much, but I just don't want to mention that. Don't want to say without mentioning it. So yeah, remember as in the wind, pretty interesting so far. All right. I'm reading, I've been reading this for a couple of years now and I've actually never finished it because I start it at the same time of the year and then the school year starts and then it gets put back on the stack and then I never get back to it until the following summer. But it is The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertayange and uh, just coming back through, brushing up some quotes for uh, some classes this fall. And uh, just thought it'd be good to read back through him. And it's very good just to think through uh, all the aspects of being a thinker. And uh, this last chapter is talking about taking care of your body as well. It's like your mind exists in a physical body. So you need to think about that too. And uh, just interesting to hear him talk about, you know, sleep and eating and things like that, that I don't think about as affecting my mental process, but they definitely do. So, uh, yeah, very good. I think we've already ranked this a couple of times, but, uh, it's a really quotable book about the intellectual life. Very helpful. So, uh, the intellectual life by AG Sertayange is something I've been reading recently. I have so many questions. Um, do you, Andy, do you always read the end of a book before the beginning? Is this, or is that a mistake? (laughs) No, there's a book um, uh, called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. And so I teach, if it's a fiction book, I never read the end. I would have destroyed Wing Feather 4. It would have been horrible. But if it's a book where I'm trying to get the the ideas of it, I'll I'll read the end. I know, I know. But it does help. It does help. So So would you suggest people read Revelation before Genesis? (laughs) No. No, okay. Well, probably not. I want to know what, what I want to know what Dr. Tim's preferred translation of Genesis three sixteen is after all that study. <laughs> so funny thing, just today I got um, the paper. I sent it to my um, advisor. Yeah, advisor for my t- my uh, PhD project, and he wrote his dissertation on the Song of Songs. And he wrote me back and said, "This is really good. You need to get this published." And so. Um, I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to send it to Jets first. I'm sure they'll reject it just because it's prestigious and I'm not. But I'll start there and then trickle down effect. But the understanding is that the desire of the woman is a desire to rule. The big issue is the Song of Songs. And that's been my area of study in the last eight years or so. So how is it a desire to rule seems like a sexual desire in the Song of Songs. So what I've done, uh, and this is something I just came to last fall is the song five there's a a problem that enters the relationship and song six the couple is at war and then song seven is a resolution so it's actually in song 710 it says his desire is over me and they actually change the preposition there and i believe that it's actually submission like she is submitting to the order of creation and god's design for things and i do believe it actually has the idea of a desire to rule even in song 710. So um, whether it's desire to rule or my big point is that there's an idea of subordination, not necessarily like do what I say, kind of a subordination, but rejoicing and submitting to God's design, just as a believer would submit to the lordship and the the sovereign rule of God in one's life, that kind of a thing. All right. Good. Appreciate that. Um, I'm supposed to talk about my book too. I'm reading Tearing Us Apart, 
which is by uh, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, I believe, is the name. It's a book about abortion, just recently published. And um, I've read quite a number of books on abortion, and typically where they focus is the harm abortion causes to the unborn child, which, of course, is the, the greatest harm. What these authors are doing is trying to emphasize how the harm goes far beyond taking the life of a child, how it harms the mother, how it harms society, how it harms gender roles within society, just how a a society that has abortion um, permissible or even celebrated within it is going to suffer in in a wide variety of ways. So very, very interesting. And I'm really, I'm a few chapters in and really appreciating the argument they're making. What was the title of that again? It's called Tearing Us Apart. The subtitle is How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. So, Tim, what are your reading habits just on the whole? I'm curious, how often, like how many books, you're a book reviewer, and so how many books do you read a week? I read one book a week, one a week for review purposes. Other than that, most of my reading really over the last couple of years is older books. And I don't review those because people aren't that interested in a review of a book that's a couple hundred years old. So my uh, my discretionary reading just tends to be older things, usually uh, late 1800 period. And I just really enjoy doing that kind of reading. Mm. Very good. I'm a relentless mm. walker when I read. I uh, usually read off my Kindle and I just walk in circles around my house as I read, which is I'm a restless person. I can't sit still for too long. So yeah, wear paths. Should we ask the question about audiobooks? Oh no. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Let's we gotta go fast, but let's He reads. He actually reads. He said he reads. He doesn't listen. He reads. No, I heard Kendall. What are your what are your thoughts on audiobooks? I listen to the Bible every day in audio form. So I go for a walk in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's when I do my devotional listening. Um, which I appreciate different from reading. I think it, uh, it it's different, but I, I my devotions are largely for reading the entire Bible quickly and repeatedly, not for in-depth pondering, studying. I do that in other forms. Um, for audiobooks, I will listen to audiobooks if I don't care if I remember the content. So novels <laughs> or other books where it, you know... A, a history book or something, just a popular history book. It's enjoyable to listen to, but I don't need to remember it. I have very, very low retention for audiobooks on the whole. Yep. Yeah, I'd be very similar that way. Like, if it's if it's a story, I'm okay. Anything technical, it doesn't stick. It's yeah. not well, just you, Charlie. It's because it's the method of communication. Yes. Well. Aren't you guys teachers? Don't you lecture your students? Anyways, the, we, I'm usually oh. driving. <laughs> I'm usually driving when I'm listening to an audiobook or doing something else, right? My right. daughter listens to audiobooks as she works at the grocery store. She's got long hair. It can cover up her <clears throat> airpods. Oh, that's impressive. But yeah, they don't, they don't mind. But, you know, so you're doing something. If you're just sitting and focusing and concentrating, it might be better. Sure. As I'm sure your students do. Studiously. Yes. Oh, yes. Which is why we have the rule they can't listen. They have to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great segue into a new written book that uh, Tim Challies has produced for us. Uh, we're excited to discuss this book today. It's called Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss, and the Comfort of God. And uh, Tim, we really want to give you the opportunity to 
tell us what the book is about and why you wanted to write it. Let me kick us off with this question. What are you seeking to accomplish in ministry with this book? Yeah, good question. The book came out of um, my son's death and in the aftermath of his very unexpected death, he was a seminary student at Southern Seminary and just his heart stopped. Um, in, in the aftermath of that loss, I didn't really know what to do but to write, just being the way I, I think, the way I process things. And um, so in the, the hours, days, weeks, months that followed, I wrote a lot, just as my, my way of working it through, bringing my questions before the Lord, looking for answers, uh, meditating, all of these things. And um, eventually, I spoke to my publisher and thought maybe some of these writings, some of which I shared through my blog, others of which I did not, maybe would be a benefit to other people, perhaps people who had endured a similar loss or people who are dealing just with some of the, the other losses we experience in life, of spouses, of, of parents, and then just suffering in general. People who are going through the difficulties we all are called to go through at some point in this life. And so the ministry purpose, I think, would just be equipping people. And the way I'm doing that is by just bringing my real-time thoughts. This isn't a theology of grief. I'm, it's way too early for that. It's going to take a long time for me to get to, to that point. But this is just me processing things in real time over the the course of the first year. Yeah, that was definitely, as I read through, I just thought it was very genuine. It's obviously as a father working through the loss of a son, it is, it's not a deep thinking book. It's going to help someone process in the moment. So uh, Dr. Little, Andy, uh, do you have any follow-up questions there? So as you, as I was reading the book, I noticed I was wondering the same thing is who, who did you write this for? And I remember, so my wife got diagnosed with cancer. She's fine. She's come through it, but it was a really hard time. And I had some people uh, tell me two things. You need to get in the Bible way more than you think you need to. You just need to be in it as much as possible. And then they would give me books to read. And so I got some good books and I found it was really hard when you're walking that path to read anything that was very heavy thinking as I started to read your book, I noticed that, did you purposely write it with that in mind? It sounds like you did. You were writing it for someone in the midst of this? Yeah, I mean, really, I was the audience for my book. I was writing it for me mm. first. And that's especially true. It's divided into four seasons progressing through a year. That's especially true for the first two seasons where I wasn't thinking about a book, maybe even the first three seasons. I was just writing for the people who read my blog, writing for my family, but largely just writing for myself, which in a sense is, the, that's what the blog has been all along. It's just me working out the, the Christian life in a public way. And so I was writing it for myself, just processing these things, trying to, to really what I was trying to do was bring truth to bear on this particular circumstance. I've always claimed to have a high view of God's sovereignty. What am I going to do with God's sovereignty when so far in life, God's sovereignty has always dictated the things I want anyways, but now God's sovereignty has dictated something far from what I would mm. desire. So what am I going to do with that? Am I now mm -hmm. going to deny God's sovereignty or reframe it, or am I just going to dive, dive deeper into it? And so these were the things I was, I was working out. And as I've gone back and read other, other books on this, and I agree that in the initial stages of grief, it's very hard to read, especially in-depth stuff that certainly didn't work for me. But what I did find helpful was reading other people's sort of real-time mm 
reflections or their mm. very personal reflections. Um, that was better to me than more abstract theology or more abstract um, understandings of grief. When I really appreciated your, the way you used uh, quotations and scripture references. I noticed that you, well, first of all, you chose to do on my copy that I have here, end notes. I don't know if that'll retain till the final copy. Um, so you really couldn't get bogged down in all the details, but the way you would, would quote scripture, I don't know how to describe it, but you almost were trying to be, it seemed like you were being gentle and you did have quotes from other people. When I thumb, when I initially just did the flip through, I didn't see lots of footnotes or I saw some quotes and things, but as I got into it, it's very rich. Every chapter is founded on a principle or a truth but I don't know how you did it. You did a really good job. I thought it's it's there, but it's, I don't know, it's gentle, I guess I would say. So I really like that about the book. And it seems like that must have been the design. Yeah, yeah thanks. I did um, keep scripture, scripture references in EndNotes. I do quote it either directly or just sort of my own paraphrase yeah. of it. And so it's clear there's scripture woven throughout. But I did choose not to continually insert parentheses with verses between. And I just found, again, what I needed was biblical thinking. I needed to go to scripture um, in my loss, but I was just so helped by people just bringing the truth as it was worked out in mm. their lives, as they were mm. actually um, enacting those truths in the midst of their sorrow. And so that's what I, I tried to do. And I just thought as well for um, I, I'm, I'm in a context here in Toronto where um, people just aren't familiar with scripture and increasingly putting in references like that doesn't mean anything to a lot of the readers. Um, I want this book to go out to, to people who don't know the Lord. Um, when you go to a cemetery on a regular basis, as we do, you start to meet people there who are in deep grief. And uh, you think maybe a book like this could be helpful to them. And I wanted mm. to um, make it as accessible to them as possible. So Christians will immediately pick up on those references. They'll know how and where to find them. But I thought that might be just a little bit inaccessible for, for unbelievers. The illusions and the echoes were all over. And I think that I really appreciated that. Yeah, good. Thanks. In one of the chapters, you talk about how you had to, how you sent your daughter back to school after Nick's uh, passing away. And um, I mean, I haven't lost a child, um, but that's something that my wife and I have had to work through having not lost a child. I can't imagine the struggle that would have been to entrust your child again. And you talk about like that anxiety um, and, and, then, and then submitting to the will of God. I don't know if maybe you could encourage our listeners, um, maybe from even that idea yeah, I, I think whenever we have a really significant loss or we experience a very significant grief or trauma, it, it, for a time, we feel like we've got a target on our back. Uh, for a time, we feel like if God did this, why wouldn't he also do that? If he took one child, why wouldn't he take another? Or if he gave me this illness, why wouldn't he give it to my wife? Or why wouldn't he give me another one? And we do sense, I think we do for a time really um, fear God in the sense that we, we acknowledge he, he really does rule this world in his way, according to his purpose and his plan. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us if he can do these things. He doesn't give us advance notice. He's going to do these things. He just acts in his sovereignty and uh, sending Abby away in the aftermath of that loss uh, was, 
was just one of those things where we had to determine where we're going to live fatalistically and say, no, we're going to pull everyone in close and not let them go. And we're going to act like we have control or are we going to acknowledge, no, God has control and uh, he will, he will do what he, he, how he, he will act as he sees fit and in the way that brings him most glory. And we just have to really trust in him and in his character. That was very difficult to do, but I think the Lord enabled us to do that. And really the same thing was true. And when you realize your child's heart can just stop, um, this terrible thought that, well, why wouldn't happen to my other children? Is there something, some defect in us where I wouldn't happen to others in my family? And so the same thing, you just have to, in that moment, decide, am I going to trust God or am I going to just live in worry, live in fear? Mm -hmm. It's connected to uh, one of the themes I th- saw throughout the book is uh, you mentioned God's goodness mm-hmm. repeatedly and going through something like that, I could see how questioning God's goodness uh, would be something that I would really struggle with. And I didn't know if maybe the emphasis on God's goodness and you writing about it may have been your way of reinforcing that idea or I don't know if anything you could even share on that idea. Yeah, I think I share a lot about God's goodness because that was one one rock we were anchored to the whole time. We never wavered in our understanding that God is sovereign and God is good. And so if God is sovereign, then there is nothing else that caused Nick's death ultimately other than the will of God. And so whether it was, you know, whatever the secondary cause was, ultimately it was within the will of God. And then God is good, which means he didn't do this to harm us. He didn't do this to, to harm Nick. He didn't do this to just because he wanted to do it, you know, just because he didn't do it for no reason and no purpose. God is good. And so I think that theme comes up just as a way of me reinforcing that in my own mind, that whatever else is true, God is sovereign. God is good. I can absolutely count on those things and then interpret my, uh, interpret, interpret my circumstances or interpret God's providence through that lens. And as you went through some of those trials and you were grounded in that truth, I also saw how repeatedly you recognized your stewardship. Well, there's a few stewardships, but your stewardship of being the husband and the father mm-hmm. to your surviving children and how you sought to even lead them in God's goodness. And I can, you know, um, I have a friend that's lost somebody recently and like, and, and his, his wife and his child. And I don't know if there's somebody going through something like that. How could you encourage a father to guide their wife and their children uh, through a situation like that? So we talk about, and at least I talk about being complementarian, understanding that within the local church, within the family, the husband, father has a particular calling to lead. And it wasn't until this time of deep sorrow, deep grief that I realized that when, when I'm most broken is when my family most needs me to lead. And mm. so I found myself in the situation mm. where I was completely shattered but right then in my brokenheartedness was when my whole 24 years of marriage, this was when my wife most needed me. And all these years of parenting, this is when my girls most needed me. And so I wasn't able to opt out. I wasn't able to, to go down. I had to, I had to continue to lead even through um, all, all the sorrow I was experiencing personally. So that didn't mean I had to suppress it all and push it away. 
it did mean that I couldn't become useless. I couldn't give up. I had to, I had to be there for them. And so I think for the, the father you're speaking about, the, the husband, the same thing is true, that when you're most broken is also when you're most needed. And that's where you just need to cry out to God, not just for hope and healing for mm-hmm. yourself, but also the ability to be a faithful leader and faithfully steward that position you've taken on by being a husband and a father. Hmm. Um, so another question that I had or something that I observed as I was working through it and like how you work through that suffering. I repeatedly, you used these analogies. I mean, you mentioned near the beginning about how the seed and the farmers out planting his seed in the fall uh, and how the seed dies and then it's reborn. Uh, and, and you mentioned the winter and the coldness that winter is and how it felt like that was in your soul and what you're going through right now. Um, lugging water cans and to the uh to the plot and how uh the the weight of the water is not that hard at first but then the 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 persevering through trial is like carrying a water can a long ways and when you're getting closer it gets heavier and heavier and 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 how that struggle with sorrow and i didn't know like as you were writing how these analogies came to mind and how they helped you uh, work through your sorrow. Um, it's just something that I picked up on as I was reading through the books, the abundance of analogies and how it seemed like just the regular natural affairs of this world, you were able to connect to spiritual truths and the suffering that you were going through and how God may have used that to help you um, through the trial. Yeah. Yeah, I did borrow heavily from the natural world. And I think there's a couple of things in play. One was I was reading older authors who are probably a little more connected to the natural world than we are today. And some of the analogies, you can follow the footnotes and see I I borrowed from them or adapted from their work. But then also there's something just very earthy, something shockingly earthy about death. Um, Dust to dust, you know, we were from the dust, we return to dust. And I don't think I'd ever really considered just the sheer vulgarity and, and earthiness of death, just how how terrible and how how awful it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was drawn to the natural world in that sense as well. The natural world of such beauty, but also such terror, such joy and such fear that comes with the natural world. So I think probably both of those things were were in play. But yeah, as I was in the process of writing, the world around was offering me just such pictures of what I was going through and such ways of finding hope and meaning through it. Yeah. So there's one particular chapter that kind of, you know, I mean, they're, they're all kind of jump out to you in different ways. And uh, I mean, obviously single guy don't have any kids, you know, so I don't understand that side of it. I did a few years ago, very unexpectedly lose my father and he was, he was one of my closest friends. And so the, the chapter that kind of jumped out to me, chapter 38, the title, I miss my son today. And it's just, you know, like you said, very real time, you know, it's not, it's not a very profound thing. It's just like, Hey, guess what? I miss my son. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling people, kind of that first year after my dad died, I I know every day I thought about this. It's like never in my life could I confidently say, well, okay, you know, I love, I love football, the Iowa Hawkeyes, you know, here in Iowa, 
I don't think I could tell someone confidently <clears throat> I thought about the Iowa Hawkeyes every day for this year. And you come to something like this, and I could say, you know what? I know for the past 12 months, I've thought about this one thing. I wake up, I think about it. And you're you're capturing that idea of, you know, well, okay, here I am again. I miss them. How did you process through that, especially as you're as you're writing about it? And I don't know, are there any unique difficulties in processing an emotion like that when it becomes a project or as it became a book for you? Kind of, I know it's kind of three or four very open-ended questions, but can you maybe walk me through that? And how did you just kind of comfort yourself in those moments? Yeah. I certainly have thought about Nick every day over the last almost two years now. He's never far from my mind. He comes to he comes to mind often. And, uh, you know, one of the things we've had to think about as a family is if one of us is having a good day, is the other allowed to come and start talking about Nick? And, you know, I might be having a good mm. day. And um, mm. is, it, is it my right to just kind of ruin someone else's day if they're they're doing great? And now I come and and bring my problems to them. And, you know, generally that's what families do. It's okay. But we have had to be just thoughtful about um, when we just kind of take those feelings or those thoughts and say, I'm not just going to let those dwell on my mind right now. And my daughter recently got married and that was just one of those days where he had to say, today we're going to set that aside. We'll be thinking about Nick, but we're not going to let ourselves grieve Nick today because this is a day of joy. And we think the Lord just wants us to celebrate this as a joyful occasion and not to let our, our grief overwhelm it. So we all had a moment somewhere in there, but we just sort of turn away from the others and deal with it on our own. And then, uh, you know, go back to being joyful. Um, meanwhile, I think what we're doing with those thoughts increasingly is is pushing them forward to to our reunion. So over time, my mm-hmm. thoughts of missing Nick are less about what I've left, but more what I will gain, less about um, missing him and more about being reunited with him. And of course, because he's a believer and I'm a believer, we, we have that great promise and can do that. Um, but certainly over time, yeah, the Nick isn't associated with my past the way he once was. I'm finding over time he's more associated with my future. He's certainly not associated mm-hmm. with my present. You know, in the in the first few days or weeks after a loss, you'll think you hear that person. You'll think you see that person in a crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just your brain still registers that person as being alive. But over time, they're no longer associated with the present. And then I think you begin to look forward and really long to see them again. Yeah. I, I mean, it's one of those things when my dad passed away, I was a pastor. I was his pastor. And we, we share the gospel all of the time. And we talk about eternal life. And I think I understood it enough to believe and to encourage others to believe. But there's something that happens when that dear friend who's a believer goes to heaven. And I, I think, I don't know if I would say before it was like a black and white picture and now it's in color. Because when I what you said there, when I think of my dad now, when you think of Nick, it transitions to seeing them there. And it makes it so much realer. I don't, I don't know how to describe that, but that was a very, uh, I think a very interesting way of saying it. You're, you're focusing on that future reuniting. And uh, it does definitely... Uh, you know, you think about being in the the presence of God and it's like, oh yeah, my dad's going to be there too. 
and Nick's there. And, and, and now as believers in churches that I've been at pass away, you're like, yep, they're there together. And so it's a really, the blessed hope of, mm-hmm. of what we have in Christ is a, is yeah. a great thing. Yeah. And I, I do think most of us don't think much about heaven until someone we're very close to and really love goes there. And maybe that's a fault in us, or maybe there's just other things we're thinking about. And there is a sense in which it becomes that much more real when someone we know and love is there. And we have to now consider that person is waiting for us. We will go to be where they are. They're not coming back. We we will be going there. And uh, certainly I, I feel like I'm living with one foot in heaven almost in the sense that I'm so ready to be in heaven. My, my fear of death just evaporated. Uh, who am I to be a coward when my son has <laughs> boldly gone on before? I'm just ready. It's not to say I'm going to give up on life or I'm going to do anything mm. to hasten death, but just mm. heaven feels so near and so rich and so beautiful. Now, you can ask, why wasn't it that way when Christ was there? But I don't know. I don't know how to how to really think about that other than just to say the Lord the Lord knows. And, um, you know, the, the joy of seeing Christ is completely bound up with the joy of seeing my dad who went there recently with Nick who went there and so on. So, um, yeah, I think the Lord can work all that out. Um, as you walked through this path, you, I think you said your father died a year before Nick. Is that correct? Yeah. Just a little less than a year before. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you'd walked this path of grief and it's not, and I'm not saying this to Charlie, of course, but when people's parents die, it's not good, but you know, it's, it's not unexpected that our parents would die. But when a son dies, that's more unexpected. And so the church reaches out, the church helps. And that happens in cancer diagnoses that and chemotherapy that happens in death. Um, in your, you had a post about Nick's autopsy results, and you you said in the post, please, um, we don't want comments and we don't want any advice. And I remember as we were walking our path, there were things that people did that were very well-meaning, very well-meaning. And if you've ever had a health issue and someone comes up and tries to tell you the answer to it, you've been struggling with it forever. There are things people do that are helpful, actually helpful, and there are things that people do thinking they're helpful, and then they're not helpful. Is there anything that comes to mind when I say that, that you would want our listeners to know on how to help someone walking your path that perhaps, even though maybe someone did it and they didn't uh, intentionally try to, you know, harm you, but it, it wasn't actually helpful. Sure. Let me take that from both sides. So I would say from the, mm-hmm. the perspective of those who are going through grief, those who have experienced a loss is be as charitable as you can be and just choose mm-hmm. as so far as you can choose to see the good in what people are saying, even if it could naturally lend itself to being hurt, to, to hurting you and so on. Mm-hmm. So we found there were some people who said things that I don't know if they, maybe they're not self-aware enough to know how horrible they were, or maybe they cringed later and realized, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Um, but we just chose to, to take that as, you know, with, not to be offended by it, to take it as encouragement as far as we could and just, um, go with it. Um, not to hold it against anyone. On the other hand, for those who are trying to bring comfort, yes, certainly don't, don't try and bring too many solutions, um, especially in medical issues. So, you know, in the case of somebody who's going through cancer, 
pretty good chance the doctors have more knowledge of this than you do. If you have very specialized knowledge, I mean, you yourself, that is your line of work, you may be able to step in, but it's so, so hard. I know for some people that almost greater than the grief of going through the the ordeal itself is the grief of people trying to help. And then you having to try and be charitable and tell people, no, I don't think that's going to work. That's going to work. We've talked about that. And so just bringing comfort, bringing hope, bringing meals, bringing hot meals at dinner time. These are things that are really, really helpful. Um, but we, we so naturally want to solve other people's problems. We think it would be loving if we could fix it, but some things can't be fixed. And a lot of things can't be fixed by us. Um, we just don't have the, the right skill set. So just, just bring comfort to people, but uh, don't, don't try and fix it. I really like that. Bring comfort, hope, and hot meals at dinner time. That's I like that. I like that. We had we, yeah. we got a little bit of free advice on uh, you know, take vitamin C for instead of chemotherapy, you know, things like that. And yeah. you know, you just yeah. that's helpful. I appreciate that you didn't just address those of us trying to help someone, but you also addressed the sufferer. That's that's very helpful. Yeah, well, when we're suffering, I think we can get pretty entitled if we're not careful. We can think mm. that nobody could possibly understand what I'm going through. I alone am, am dealing with this, or I'm allowed to act out because of my circumstances. I'm allowed to act in certain ways. But no, this is this is where you should be showing the the heights of Christian character. And this is what we profess. God, if you take it all away, I will still love you. So God takes one thing away. And if we immediately act out in rebellion, uh, we're, you know, that, that's not what we've said we do. And so here in this moment, I'm going to do my utmost to show true Christian character and uh, prove that really what we're doing, I think, often is we're proving to the Lord, we're proving to others as much as anything, we're proving to ourselves. I really believe this. I really do believe that God is good. I didn't know if I would. I didn't know. I didn't know I could go through this and still love the Lord, but look, I do. That means my profession mm. is true. It's such an encouragement personally when you find you're not wavering in your faith, that you love the Lord more now than you did before. It's funny you say that. Um, when we walked our cancer diagnosis, it was a stage three or four. It was pretty intense. Didn't know, you know, are the kids going to know their mom or hear stories? Mm -hmm. um, and it was funny. I felt bad having that thought that you just shared. I felt like bad that, oh, I'm encouraged that I still love God and I'm not, because you don't know, you never know, am I going to walk away? Um, but that's encouraging to hear that. Thank you for sharing. I got another one. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned like your ministry of suffering and one of the, as I was reading through even the beginning of the book, it, it's like, it seems like you've changed. I mean, definitely through this, but like your ministry is changing and then as I kept reading through the book, you had the one, uh, the one chapter, God, give me sons. And I mean, my mind went right to, I know I'm a little weird. I'm an Old Testament guy, but Isaiah 56 about how the, the man who can't have children and God says he's going to enlarge his tent and he's going to give him children. And, uh, and so I just was wondering what uh, or how, how your ministry has changed or, or if there's some direction that you're seeing as a result of this, where you've really kind of embraced, you know, what, just like that stewardship concept before, uh, a stewardship of a ministry of suffering where God in his sovereignty has, has opened this opportunity of ministry to you and you're seeking to steward it 
for his mm-hmm. glory. So I don't know if maybe you could just share any more about that, how people could use their suffering for God's glory. Sure. I think in the Christian world, when we think about ministry and we go through something and then think about ministry, usually what we're thinking is registering a ministry with the government and starting to accept donations. And now my whole ministry is going to be based on this thing I've gone through. And there's there's probably time for that. So I certainly have never had any, any thoughts like that. Um, what I did see happening immediately was just the things I was thinking about and therefore the things I was writing about day by day and week by week on the blog changed dramatically. So some things that were very interesting to me and very important to me um, right before Nick died were just completely unimportant and uninteresting hmm. the day after. Um, some of those topics just seem to not not be important or not be important to me anyway. So I wouldn't, you know, that for other people, very, you know, fine. But for me, just in the aftermath of this, it just, those things were, were kind of stripped away. And I really did want to focus more on how can we live this life, a suffering life, live it well, and stay strong, stay true to what we believe, live happy, joyful lives, even as we suffer. We're not called to live lives of misery, even when we've gone through real, real deep sorrows and uh, live well, go off to heaven and hear our well done. That, that really has become the, the, the theme of my writing. Um, all that said, this is still very new. It's still been less than two years. And I know there's going to be lots of time still. We're still babies at this, uh, myself and my my family. Um, if, if God grants me an average lifespan, this will be another 35 or 40 years. I'll be carrying this this sorrow and this mm-hmm. loss. And I expect there will be lots of time to just see how the Lord's going to use it. Um, well, I think what's what's really jumped out to me, though, is that whatever ministry we have begins in the local church. There's too many mm-hmm. Christian ministries where people are not serving in their local church, but they're serving all over the Christian world. They're on the speaker circuit, even though they don't attend a local church or mm-hmm. they're teaching family ministry, even though their kids hate them. That's that, that happens too much yeah. in the Christian world. So if God calls me to anything, I expect he'll be calling me to it first in the local church or in the local churches in this area and only subsequently in a wider mm-hmm. way. Cause really when, when we, we experienced our loss, it was those who are closest to us who were equipped to be most helpful to us. And mm-hmm. lots of people poured out love and um, sent cards and, and things that were truly a blessing. But when it came down to hot meals at 5 p.m., that was the people who live right around us, the people who are local, who are part of our, our lives. And it, it really made me realize more than ever how much the local church truly, truly matters in these things. Well, that's an important thing right there. Um, just the emphasis on the local church for suffering. It's like that local component, the people that are right around you. And I don't know, I just, some people have like this tendency to withdraw and to pull back, but that church, that's where, where that ministry can really take place. So I think that's encouraging. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I want to point out something else that really has been on my mind a lot, which is in the aftermath. So we, this all happened during the pandemic. Canada was, very concerned about the pandemic. So we we went down to the States and had a memorial service and then came back to Canada. And for our first two weeks here, we were on our property, forbidden to have people in, forbidden to leave the property, two weeks of total isolation. Um, in that time, our church was wonderful and ministering to us, but so are our neighbors who aren't churchgoers. And it was just 
it really stood out to us that the people around us loved us well and cared for us well, which made me think, I think sometimes we as Christians just do what anyone would do and count it as something really, really amazing. But really, we're, we're, we're not being Christians, we're just being humans. You know, we're just showing love and respect to people around us. So I don't really know where that's leading me. Um, I'm still pondering it. But I do think we possibly just need to to think about that as believers, that um, we, yeah, some of the love we show is just God's common grace kind of love. And uh, thank God that he does share his common grace amongst all humanity. So uh, we don't, we're not fully reliant on, on just our brothers and sisters. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I do remember sitting in the dining room at my mom's house the night my dad passed away and having neighbors come Mm -hmm. and neighbors that, you know, maybe would profess to be religious, but you just don't know. And, uh, that's a very interesting way of thinking about it. You know, we do love to get credit for things like that when, you know, a lot of unbelievers would be very similar. And, uh, I was just a couple of days ago, my grandma on the, my mom's side had passed away and, um, very religious people and they're very loving and caring, but I would, you know, not really sure where all of these people are. And, uh, it's a very good insight to think that through like, you know, what's the bare minimum. And then, you know, what, what do most people do? What would set us apart as Christians to help someone mourn the best way they can. But maybe, maybe that's just another podcast. We're kind of getting towards the end of it here, but uh, sure. any of you guys, Andy or Dr. Little, do you guys have any more questions? I got one more. I want to add a comment on that last thing. It was interesting. So, um, Robin had 36 days in the hospital cause her chemo treatments were five day infusions. It was grueling and people were so loving and so kind to help us. The, the interesting thing, and this will dovetail into what I wanted to ask you about. It, it was that they were loving, but I remember having a thought if I had worked at a company or I was like a, I went to the same bar every week or whatever, I would imagine my friends would do some of the same things. So what is so different about this? And I remember thinking it's that it's true. It's, this is the theology. This is, I remember thinking when these people were loving me and my wife, it was like, it was like God loving me. And I remember, um, a friend shared Psalm 121 with me where it says the Lord never sleeps and never slumbers. And that theological truth carried my wife. And it was more than that. It wasn't just that verse. Um, but the theology, like what the Bible says, the truth of scripture really, it became real. And I remember listening to a song and the lyrics, I'd heard it a, a, plenty of times and I was just bawling because the lyrics were so good. And so it was almost as though the Bible came alive to the sufferer. So do you mind if I read a quote from your book? I mean, it's, it's fair. I think we got copyright. I'll, I'll stay under the copyright limit. But you, you had said, this is early on in the fall, you said, and though the, the pastor's little phrase may have become trite over time, though I may have grumbled about it in the past, today, right now, nothing is more precious to me. Nothing is more important to me than this. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. This is not the only truth propping me up. 
I've heard people speak in, in I've heard people in grief speak of God's sovereignty, perhaps repeating a well-known phrase that compares to a pillow upon which the child of God rests his head, giving perfect peace. Sovereignty speaks to power and the right to reign. It is the attribute of kings and potentates and others who are in positions of supremacy. Ultimately, it is an attribute of God himself. You carry on the converse, the, the, the paragraph to talk about you learned to trust. And I just, the whole time, it, would you talk about how theology affected you as you walked through this? Yeah. Um, I, to me, it was very, I read this and thought, wow, it's almost like these trite. I remember cliches became uncliched for me. Yeah. What do you, your thoughts on that? Sure. First circle back to the last topic we were talking about. I think you're right in that um, anyone can bring a lasagna, but when you're a Christian, you can bring lasagna and a word from the Lord. And that word from the Lord Amen. is out of the Bible, but it's still, mm. you, you receive that as God speaking to you. Mm. And there's a different way in which you receive the lasagna from the Lord as well. You know, this is God's people loving on behalf of mm -hmm. God. You don't expect God to speak from the sky. You don't expect him to miraculously provide bread. Well, what he'll do is provide it through his people. And so we took that as a, a great encouragement. Um, We've often said how thankful we are that we had our theology in place before we went mm -hmm. through this. We would not want to be trying to figure out, is God good? Is God sovereign? Mm. What is my only comfort in life and death? We would not want to be wrestling with these things in the midst of, of a, a, a grief like this. But to, to carry that theology in... All we really had to do was just enact it. We just had to say, okay, here's the opportunity now to truly believe it and to act like we believe it. And that was such a blessing to us to, to have gone in with that. So we hadn't realized it at the time as we were learning these things, as we were reading good books, as we were, you know, as a kid memorizing the Heidelberg Catechism, all of these things. But this was the truth that we really, really depended upon in our moment of suffering. And we were just so thankful that we had that theology to fall back on, or really that theology to just lean on and rest on. Thank you. Are we good to, to wrap this one up guys, Tim, Dr. Little, you got anything else or. The only other thing I was going to say is, did you read grief observed by CS Lewis as you were reading a lot of your books, Tim? Okay. It's, I did not. it was very, I, I, someone recommended it to me and I like C.S. Lewis and I read it and I remembered at the time, the first, it's like four chapters, I believe, man, it's raw. It, it It's, it's the edges of darkness. And then at the very end, he pulls back. And what I really appreciated about your book is that you were raw, but you never went to the edge and you always brought scripture. It was so good. I would have rather have been reading this book when I walked a dark path. Um, so I just I just wanted to say I think you did a really good job. You did a really you, good job. You give Thank light you. throughout it. So yeah. even in the yep. midst of it, there's little glimmers of light. Mm -hmm. And the glimmers of light, I thought it got brighter near the end, which I think was yeah. your intention. So yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. And I can uh, when I set out to write, not first for a book, but just for my own purposes, I, I said I was going to be genuine. That was the that was the stipulation. I wasn't going to be better or worse than I was. And there's something in the Christian world now that says you just go ahead and be as bad as you want to be. You know, there's some authenticity that comes with railing at God and expressing anger to him. But I can say that between myself, my wife, my girls, none of us ever came close to that edge. 
none of us got close to, to turning away or even blaming God in the sense he did something wrong. We just knew from the get-go, God is good. God is sovereign. God's allowed to do this. He's not mm-hmm. acted beyond his authority, but it would be me acting beyond my authority to, to cast doubt on what God has done. So we're, we're going to resign ourselves to this in the sense of God has done something good here, even if we can't see the goodness. And we're just going to grapple with it as far as we can, try and understand it the best we can, and then just anticipate how God will make it all make sense in eternity. Mm-hmm. Amen. So we'll wrap up with this. I was at a camp a few weeks ago, and uh, there's a couple pastors standing around and uh, I had the copy of your book that I was trying to read through in preparation for our interview. And they're like, Ooh, what's that about? And it's like, well, how do you concisely, you know, what, what is this about? And there's another book we've talked about on our podcast called the moon is always round. And it's about a parent trying to, I think the, the design of the book is trying to explain to a young child about the loss of another young child. Would that Dr. Little, would you say that's yeah. an accurate yeah. The child was lost in the womb, yes. Yeah, and so I I mentioned to this group of pastors, and I said, have you heard of this book? And a couple of them had, and I said, this is the moon is always round for a different age of a child. Like, if, if you know someone who is going through the death of a child, this is a resource for a pastor that you should have on hand and say, hey, I think this will be a help for you. And they they understood it with that comparison. And so I guess I kind of want to close it off just saying, from your perspective, Tim, uh, why should someone have a couple of copies of this in their church office or in their home library? Like, wh- why do they have this? And then how could they use it in their ministry with other people? Sure. Yeah, I, I hope it'll be helpful to people who have lost a child. And now, once you're looking at the world through the lens of having lost a child, you see that it's far more common than I would have imagined. I'm just aware of it. It's, my mm-hmm. eyes are open to it. And so I'm hoping it'll be a book that will be helpful to people. Um, people can hand it to to a friend or a loved one who's going through that. They may not be able to read it right away, but it, it, it'll be there. And because it's short, short chapters, easy to read. I think over time, they may be able to to gain some some benefit from it. I'm actually hoping to have a letter ready that people can give with the book that will be from me to that mm-hmm. parent. Just saying, here's a couple of chapters that might be helpful now, and here's some that may help you a little bit later on. Because it can just be overwhelming in that time. People give you books, and they're just probably not that helpful initially. You're just in too, too deep uh, a period of sorrow. But then also... The, the, the subtitle is The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. The pain of loss is universal. Whether you lose a child or a parent or a beloved aunt or uncle or friend, we all experience loss. That's universal. And uh, so, too, can be the comfort of God if we're willing mm-hmm. to to turn to God for His comfort. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that this book beyond that will will prove comforting to those who are going through sickness, going through any other kind of loss and so on. Just all the suffering, all the sorrow that's bound up with life in this world. I hope there will be something there that will speak to them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, 
talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.